now with the mention of whiskey in its title. Hey, this is Jake coming live from the Franklin Room in Chicago, Illinois. Yeah, not usually in my basement where we usually record at, but we have a nice little new location to settle into on this rainy, cozy Monday afternoon. Um, and what better place than being downstairs in one of the great whiskey bars of all of Chicago? Also along with me from the Franklin Room is Mr. Peter Kim. Hey, guys. Peter, thanks for having us. Ah. Thank you for having it here. Yeah, no, I appreciate you always listening and then always giving us a place to record uh, a few times now. After we did it with Scotch Malt Whiskey Society about a month or two ago, and I feel like one other time maybe. Maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Um, but appreciate you always having us. Peter's going to also be co-hosting this afternoon, um, which we have two guests from a distillery called Old Elk. First off is Ross Graham, who's been on the podcast before back in, uh, back in like, I want to say October of last yeah, year. Yeah, October or November. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Live from the Wisconsin Whiskey Festival. And that was an adventure. The inaugural Wisconsin Whiskey It was, Festival. and we've been told they're doing it again, uh, which is great. So those of you in the area, feel free to come and join. Yes. That was definitely a, uh, a different experience. Uh, the, the people in Wisconsin, they drink uh, very well. And kudos to them. It's a different sport up there. It, I appreciate it. It surely is. Yeah. Uh, we'll see how it goes this year. I think we're going back to record more podcasts. Hopefully awesome. we're in a quieter space this time. <laughs> We'll see. We'll see how it goes. But we also have a very special guest from your distillery, um, the one and only Greg Metz, who is your master distiller. Greg, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. And uh, really looking forward to hanging out with you guys for a while. Appreciate that. I heard you just flew in from, from Colorado right now, so thanks for making us your first stop. Absolutely. Yeah. A few more stops along the way, I assume. Yeah, they got, got me booked pretty tight for the next three days. So it sounds... All that. Chicago's always been a good town for old elk and in a cool in a cool whiskey bar too yeah now yeah, one of, one of the best spots uh can't reiterate that enough if you are from chicago please come visit peter and his team or if you are visiting chicago um it is the must place to stop to have a cocktail a dram and even some really great food so um with that uh yeah, greg it seems like your travel schedule is pretty crazy these days uh representing the brand on the road well we've uh, uh come a long ways uh, we'll be in market six years since november started from ground zero and uh, you know it used to be people would say well who are you what do you got <clears throat> what do you what do you bring to the table and now uh the events i go to almost uh, all of them people are coming up to the booth they know old elk they recognize the brand and they're they're uh, looking to see what we've got new coming out uh in the next couple months so uh really every year for the past two we've, we've done a really good job of bringing new things to the table for our consumers as well as our four core category uh, brands of whiskey. So mm. it's been great. Yeah. Does it, the travel ever get old representing distilleries and going to markets and meeting new people? And Well, it, I'll tell you, it, it's, uh, I tell people a lot that, uh, you know, traveling is not glamorous <laughs> and it's not because you really never get to see the, the cities that you're in, you, you're pretty much relegated to the events in your room and, and whatever, <laughs> airports. But you see some great lobbies and hotels. There you go. <laughs> but, but really, the, the, the real gratification is, is, is the events and, and all the folks that you get to meet uh, along the way and, and all the people that uh, have come to appreciate Old Elk brand and, and what we're bringing to the table. So, uh, so I'm a people person by nature anyway, and, uh, you know, getting to interact with uh, our consumers who appreciate what we do is is really pretty special. Yeah, it is. It everybody thinks when you're traveling on the road that it's some um, every day is just 
amazing opportunity to go into like one of the best bars, one of the best restaurants, or you know, go do something special. If I come into Chicago, go into a Cubs game, for example. But a lot of time, it's just kind of going back and forth and doing events and saying hi to people. And like you said, spending a lot of time in a hotel room and hotel lobbies, seeing the airports and all that. But there are some glamorous parts for sure, but it is tiring at the same time. Uh, no, it, it's been uh, it's been good and uh, and certainly gratifying. So. Great. How is uh? How is it showcasing this brand different than years past of other brands you've worked for? Well, I guess there's really quite a few things, actually. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, as you know, I spent 38 years of my career at the Lawrenceburg, Indiana distillery, and that was uh, at one time the largest distillery in the world when I started. And it was, you know, a very commercial at- atmosphere. We were big. We did uh, a lot of whiskeys for originally Seagram's and then uh migrated to a 100% contract distiller over the course of my career there. But uh, what, what makes Old Elk uh, unique and special is is the custom mash bills that they asked me to produce for them. Uh, I was about 36 years into my career when I met Old Elk, <clears throat> and they actually gave me the first opportunity in my career uh, to craft three custom mash bills for their brand, uh, each one of them entirely different. and. Uh, really i guess what what made it so special is is really the the foundation that that old elk brought to the table and it was really two simple things it's world-class quality products Mm. and it's being different than everybody else on the shelf Mm. and by being different uh that allowed me to create mash bills for old elk that were entirely different than anything that you'll find on the shelf relative to the the grain ratios in those mash bills uh, and then, uh, you know, being on the ground floor of building a brand from from the ground up, I, I was never part of that in my uh, in the commercial years that I spent in Lawrenceburg. And uh, I was really never part of sales and really never part of distribution. So in many ways, it allows me to really make my career full circle mm-hmm. uh, relative to be, being exposed to all facets of the industry. So it's been... Uh, been very invigorating for me how would you say that old elk has defines itself being different the most well i think uh primarily just just our uh, our, our mash bills being so much different and in for lack of a better term uh extreme relative to others that you'll find on the shelf and uh, the first one that they asked me to craft was the old elk old elk flagship bourbon uh and when we met 10 years ago they said we want our bourbon to be smooth and easy and that was really the end of the meeting so Mm. again as i said earlier that that was my first opportunity to actually build a mash bill from the ground up unrestricted and uh, unrestricted relative to how i built it and unrestricted relative to the cost of the mash bill and i had never uh, in 36 years had that latitude so it was like holy cow this is like a kid <laughs> in a candy store uh, did you feel like a freedom for the first time in your career in that it was it was uh, it was like holy cow this this is really awesome yeah. and, and you know for for a little bit it's like wow where do i even start <laughs> but uh, at the end of the day you know when the smoke cleared it was like this is an, an incredible opportunity and uh, and really once once i settled in with the idea and the opportunity i I just really leveraged my experience uh that i had gained uh, up to that point in my career and uh, you know for the old elk 
flagship bourbon recipe uh, that hit smooth and easy. I knew I had to get the malted barley content mm. way up in that mash bill. Uh, in the back of my mind, I also knew that uh, all of the other mash bills that I produced in my career up to that point always had some degree of rye in it for a very nice spice characteristic. Right. And I really wanted that to be part of uh, Old Elk's uh, flavor profile. And again, through experience, I knew that uh, to get that spice character to carry through into the distillate, it takes a minimum of 15% rye in the mash bill. Uh, really, once I arrived at that, it, it really became reverse math. I, I took the corn content for a bourbon down to the minimum, which is 51%. Hmm. Uh, factored in 15% rye to get that spice note, and that left me room for 34% malted barley. So. <laughs> Uh, again, relative to all the other bourbons that you'll find on the shelf, 34% malted barley is four or five times higher than anything else you'll find on the shelf. Right. Almost all others are 5 to 10%. So, uh, you know, that, that makes that mash bill unique, and it's unique to Old Elk. So we, we finished, uh, finished that uh, mash bill. I produced about 9,000 barrels for them over the course of a year or two and then uh, Old Elk uh, came back and we we gathered around the table and started talking about Greg what do you what do you think will be the next growing category six or seven years down the road and that's exactly where we're at today like six or seven years mm-hmm. down the road from that conversation and when we had that conversation uh, we talked and at that time rye whiskey was gaining traction like crazy and really, in no small part to the uh, rye whiskey mash bill that we made fam- famous out of Lawrenceburg, Indiana, the, the 95% rye mash bill. <laughs> but uh, as we talked, uh, you know, wheat bourbon and wheat whiskey uh, had some nice players in it, obviously, <laughs> but not very many. Right. And uh, so as we talked, I told him I thought we ought to, ought to do a wheat bourbon and a wheat whiskey mash bill, but, but go extreme uh, relative to our DNA. Uh, relative to being different than everybody on else on the shelf. So uh, I put together a, uh, a weeded bourbon uh, recipe for him, which is 51% corn, 45% wheat, which is the maximum amount of wheat I could get in and still leave room for <laughs> just a little percent, bit of rye. 4% malt to convert it. Yeah. <clears throat> and then we took the same approach with the wheat whiskey mash bill and, and actually leveraged what I'd learned about the 95% rye mash bill. So we came out with a 95% wheat. 5% malt wheat whiskey mash mm. bill. Again, it's nothing like it uh, on the shelf anywhere. So, uh, and, and then, you know, to follow it up, we, we uh, you know, used all the methods that I was taught uh, under the Seagram umbrella on how to make some of the world's best whiskey, uh, world-class quality. And, and to me, when I talk about world-class quality, uh, to me in my training, that means free of quality defects. So, mm. uh, you know, I, I produced those <clears throat> mash bills for Old Elk, and I can assure you that uh, they're world-class quality uh, relative to being free of any quality defects. So. Yeah. Going back to your previous career, what's it like spending, you know, nearly 40 years at one job? I think for people of our generations, we no one stays around for more than like four or five years at a job, but for you to stay at one, one corporation that became so so a part of the whiskey industry and so much defined what we are drinking in America. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I, I loved that 38 years I spent there and, you know, I, you know, I've, 
probably had Seagram's not gotten out of the business in 2002, I'd likely still be there. Mm. Uh, but but in any case, you know, they got out of the business and things changed. But really what Old Elk brought to the table for me was uh, really the opportunity to, to uh, become part of a brand and help grow it from the ground up. And over the four-year period that I got to know Old Elk and the people within the company while I was still master distiller in Lawrenceburg and, and, and producing the, the custom mash bills that I had created for them, uh, you know, more than anything, I, as I got to know the people, I, I got to know that, <clears throat> that, the, that the people were special, and mm-hmm. they were all young, smart, passionate people. Uh, literally, I'm the old goat in the crowd. <laughs> I, I'd say, what are we, maybe 35, under 40 employees for the whole company. Yeah, in all honesty, when I joined the company four and a half years ago, when I joined, there was 19 total employees, and I was the fourth oldest at 35 years old. Jeez. So to tell you like how small we were, like we were in only 18 states at that point. Yeah. Um, and to have Greg obviously be the elder statesman with all the knowledge, uh, but you know he had been working at one facility longer than 90% of the people who had even been alive at the company. Yeah, no, so. that was my biggest thought of uh, when we first booked this podcast. I'm like, wow, we're going to be talking to somebody who's been distilling longer than I've been alive. <laughs> and you're like, you know, it's just an amazing compliment to you for yeah. staying in it for so long. So, so the beauty of it was I was, uh, for 38 years, I was an in-the-trenches master distiller. I mean, I spent probably a minimum of four hours a day out with the equipment and the fermenters and the operators. Uh troubleshooting and over overseeing the whole process from beginning to end and uh you know interacting with the operators i said earlier that i'm a people person by nature and and you know to this day i i still uh admire all the folks that i worked with down there for so many years but uh, old elk gave me a a a different opportunity and, and an opportunity to really uh make my career full circle and you know being joining a company of young, smart, passionate people like I talk about, and being able to help build a brand from ground zero was uh, incredibly intriguing to me. And, uh, you know, I, I have never looked back uh, since. And, uh, you know, it's it's been a, a remarkable journey, and it's been incredibly gratifying. I, I, I say this a lot. I, I want Old Elk to be my crowning achievement uh, in the industry. And fingers crossed, I think we're... We're, we're getting there on your way for sure yeah. yeah does working with a younger team like that when you're you know more advanced in your career does that reinvigorate life in you to do something completely different oh absolutely and uh, you know the really the really cool part about our group i really it's really more of a family than it is a group but <clears throat> the really cool part is that you know 30 35 or whatever our total number is everybody has different different roles and different responsibilities not one of us in that in that group thinks that we're more important than the other and it's uh and that's a pretty special thing in this day and age uh you know again so everybody does their role and they do it well and i think that's a big reason why we've been such a successful company at such a young age right was there certain could you have done this earlier in your career where you would have branched off and done something super creative start this new brand or is it was it the right amount of time of where you're working on this working as a distiller for so long and you're like this is the right time to kind of have a blank canvas and start all over that's a, that's an incredibly 
difficult question, but you know, I, I would say that I would say it was a perfect opportunity at the perfect time. Really, uh, you know, I don't. I, I did a lot of really cool stuff in Lawrenceburg over that 38 years. We we did we did a lot of cutting edge stuff at that facility for for the 38 years I was there, and each one of those projects was different than the other and yeah i guess today's age you would call it a resume builder <laughs> but pretty good one uh yeah indeed and, and you know a lot of it a lot of it was you know process oriented and and procedure oriented and and art oriented relative to you know making world-class quality products but the other bigger part of that spectrum was really uh developing and learning people skills mm. uh and and you know i say it a lot in in many other podcasts the seagrams gave me the best training in the world relative to becoming a master distiller which is something i didn't know when i joined them right but uh their training program lasted for as long as you work for them and for me it lasted 24 years uh, 1978 to 2002 when they got out of the business but a big part of that training was about how you make world-class quality whiskey, but uh, equally as, as important was was the people management and the people training skills that uh, was part of that program, which really is what I brought with me to, to Old Elk to you know, help promote our brands and grow our brands. And Did you always find it um, useful and smart to kind of hear everybody else's stories along the way as a professional, no matter what you did? I think uh, probably the most important takeaway from all of that people skill training was was respect learn to respect the people you work with and and uh you know give them good positive feedback <clears throat> it wasn't always glamorous it wasn't always easy i mean there yeah. was discipline was was part of that training too and you know you, you certainly have to there's a time and place for that as well but uh, i think you know i think giving respect is is huge mm -hmm. and uh you know i think uh, that's probably my biggest takeaway from from all of the people management and of that uh, leadership training that I was receiving. Yeah, I mean, it seems cliche. You hear people in every facet of life say it's the people that make your company and make it great, but it's the ones that actually talk about the people that are great. You know, those companies are great. The ones you don't hear about the people, it's, there's probably a reason why. There's not a culture built up. And my grandfather was an engineer at Jim Beam, and the stories he told me as a kid, and then, like, when you start drinking, and you start putting these names together with the people he's talking about, you're like, oh, okay, I know who those whiskey icons are. But even removing those people away, it's always the stories he told about the people he worked with that made it, like, the best place he ever had. Like, the 20 years he spent there was his favorite job, and he was fortunate enough to retire there. But it's not just about, like, the... Um, you know, the people that represent the, are the face of the company, but it's everybody behind there, too. No, I think it's an absolute, and it sounds so easy. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> but but it's not for some reason, mm. uh, and it's it's not necessarily a natural thing to do for a lot of people. But, right. Uh, you know, when you get to see it work, it, it, it really sticks with you, and it, it makes a huge difference in, yeah. in the way you uh, carry yourself going forward. So, yeah. Do you think whiskey would be a help? helpful definition or defining your entire life um from when you first started in the industry <laughs> I, I again pure dumb luck yeah uh, i i had uh, when i walked through the gate of that lawrenceburg distillery two weeks after i was offered a job by seagram's 
I didn't even know what a master distiller was. <laughs> I walked through the time office of the enormous distillery, and I think, well, I'm 23 years old. I'm going to work for a company made whiskey. I said, that's pretty damn cool. Mm. And the fact of the matter is, 46 years later, it's still pretty damn cool. Yeah, it is uh, pretty cool. Uh, so, yeah, I've, I've been uh, incredibly fortunate uh, to have made a career out of whiskey, of all yeah. things. What was it like in the times where the American consumer wasn't drinking much whiskey to be at this giant facility pumping out some of the best spirits in all of the world, but the I guess the lack of consumerism wasn't really there? Well, I can tell you, I went through uh, considerable peaks and valleys <laughs> in, my, in my 38 years here. So right. uh, Brown Goods was big when I started. Uh, that plant was really built to be a Seven Crown plant, and Seven Crown was a huge brand in 78 when I started, but it uh, started waning over the next 10 years of my career there. Uh, Brown Goods hit a bottom probably in the 1980s uh, across the board. Everybody's warehouses were plum freaking full of inventory and nobody buying it. And then lo and behold, uh, pretty soon uh, Seagram Coolers comes to the table and we switched gears and started producing Seagram coolers and Seagram vodka and Seagram gin. Hmm. Uh, then we went through a flavored vodka <laughs> phase for for quite some time. Missed those days, gosh. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, lo and behold, then the brown goods starts coming back around. Uh, rye whiskey, again, we, we made that mash bill famous down there. Uh, we went from a total distillery producing products only for Seagram's and migrated to a 100% contract distilling by 2008. So talk about a turnaround <laughs> in, 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 in concepts and kinetics. It's like, wow. And, you know, every step of the way, it was uh, another success story in just a different form or fashion. Yeah. And obviously, obviously that led me to, to Old Elk. So, In your time of distilling all those different products and having to change gears, was there one spirit that was more difficult to manufacture than any other? Well, geez, that's a tough question. So whiskey, whiskey and vodka share very similar uh, processing characteristics i mean you, you you mill it you mash it you ferment it and then you distill it but uh, making making whiskey the fermentation process is the most technical and, and the key piece of the whole puzzle the distilling part's really quite simple because all you're doing is with the distilling methods that you, we use for whiskeys and bourbons is you're extracting the flavors from the fermenter and you're transferring it to the bottle you're not doing any uh fractionating of the the distillate or separating flavors you're just pulling it from the prevent uh, fermenter and put it in the bottle uh, if you're making neutral grain spirits that's entirely different uh, fermentation is not as critical because if you create off flavors you're going to distill them out anyway in mm. this super super technical uh, spirit unit uh, it was a four or five column distillation tower that uh, is is all about fractionating all the flavors out of the product mm. so uh you know similar in some aspects but totally different in others so uh you know each each one of those products has it has its own issues relative to manufacturing it um you know we we did the, the seagram coolers uh there for for many years and, and that brought uh, a complete different storyline of, of <laughs> headaches and issues and 
in pr production problems. That, but again, that, that makes it a challenge. And, and if you if you work hard and, and and you follow your heart and you're good at what you do, you you, you figure it out and you make it work. And hmm. For the Seagram coolers, what, what was the um, alcohol produced from? Originally, it started out as, as being a spirit-based uh, product, and then, of course, the tax laws uh, caught up with that caught up with that pretty quick. Yeah. And then, then we had to migrate to a malt base. So we mm -hmm. actually we were brewing a uh, a beer, mm -hmm. but, but we were brewing it to to make yeah. it as tasteless as possible, yeah. uh, it's to make it to, to make it as neutral in flavor as possible, so that it didn't which, which presents interference. Yeah. And it's in a way too, because now you have to control the parameters of fermentation, of fermentation to to basically not produce flavor. No, that that was certainly a whole a whole new learning curve for for all of us folks at that Lawrenceburg distillery, because <laughs> you know up, up to the point, and and that was like, you know, when they brought that product to the table, it's it wasn't like a year or two to think about it. It's like. <clears throat> We're right. going to start producing this in like two months. So, so figure you know, it out. In comes all yeah. this new equipment that we'd never <laughs> operated before. We had, you had a super filter it to get to make the product, you know, incredibly clear. Clear. You needed really, really had to work hard to clarify. And uh, that was a, a multi-leaf uh, diatomaceous earth filter that was a ginormous headache yeah. and, and hard to run and. And, and hard to get a good product off of it. Uh, the fermentation, we were using uh, corn syrup-based uh, type products mm -hmm. uh, to get as neutral as a, uh, a brew as we could get. And uh, you had a carbon filter. Those were all, all methods that uh, were brand new to that plant. And, huh. and it was a high volume, uh, fast paced product. So it was boom, 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 get this out the door. We, we had a, a bottling line that was most of the bottling lines <clears throat> at that point were all like probably 350 bottle a minute units for vodka and, and whiskeys and gins. Uh, uh, when they when they brought in the bottling line for the cooler, it was like 1,100 bottles a minute. <laughs> it, it, it was it was something to behold to watch that thing run. You it, you could not see the bottles; it yeah. was a blur. <laughs> but again, that uh, it was a, a sugary. Uh, product and uh, you know when that when that when there was a, a train wreck on that on that bottling line yeah, it was yeah. substantial oh uh, so yeah so uh, you know I got to got to see a lot a lot of different uh, things over over my career as as the industry changed from one thing to another to another and then back to bourbon again this is an unprecedented bourbon boom uh, right right uh, um, and no end in sight so it's it's a big deal. <laughs> How as a master distiller did you start to forecast some of this boom? Like you hope that you've laid down enough product, but that's obviously like, especially looking at some of the contract distillation, you don't know that all of a sudden you're going to have an influx of 300 new brands that are like, Hey, we need whiskey too. Yeah. Well, I, uh, you know, I think sales and marketing probably played a, a bigger role in that than I did actually as a master distiller. I mean, usually we got our, our our production uh, schedule was a result of their hard work and, and their insight and intuition, and we would develop obviously we would develop a, an, an annual production plan based around what sales and marketing saw mm. uh, coming in the future. But 
you know, once we became 100% contract distillers, uh, you know, we had plenty of plant capacity to fill. We still had Diageo and Pernod as our two biggest clients as contract distillers. But, uh, you know, over that four and a half years that we were LDI, Lawrenceburg Distillers, Indiana, is when we really aggressively pursued uh, third-party contract sales and, and probably grew that uh, client base from probably a half a dozen to probably a couple hundred. Uh, and then MGP... Uh, you know, bought the facility, pretty much inherited, you know, that hard work. And then they, they've, uh, you know, continued to do that uh, over the last, what, six years, I guess. During since, since that, that period uh, where the contract distilling increased a lot, does that mean you were then uh, distilling all various types of mash bills and it gave you opportunity to kind of, I guess, learn your expertise in those? So that's a great question. <clears throat> so you brought them. Uh, yeah, so we were, we were producing four or five of the staple Seagram mash bills and, and selling it to all these other brands. And, and they just happened to be world-class quality whiskeys. There was two bourbons. There was a corn whiskey, a light whiskey, um, and a rye whiskey. And, uh, you know, people were uh, building their brands around those particular do, products. Do you remember what those mashables were approximately? Uh, yeah, the uh, we had a 21% uh, rye bourbon whiskey. That yeah. was the low rye. And then you've probably heard the term uh, a high rye yeah. mashable. That was 36% rye. Hmm. Huh. Uh, the corn whiskey was 85% corn, 15% rye, hmm. roughly. Uh, the rye whiskey was a 95.5. But anyway, those were all... Those were all components that went into Seagram brands for 50 years, mm. and they were world-class quality products, and it just happened to fit the bill for the, the big craft boom. But what makes the question so special is, is that Old Elk was the first company that came to Lawrenceburg and said, we want custom ash bills. Mm. We, we don't want what everybody else is getting. And, uh, and that's really where it started for me in Old Elk. Were you with Old Elk at the time? No. Okay. Uh, so I was still master distiller in uh, in Lawrenceburg. Old Elk approached me when they decided they wanted to get into business, and that was 2012, 2013. Mm. And that's when they said, we want you to craft custom mash bills for us, which I did. And then subsequently produced uh, in the neighborhood of 14,000 barrels for them. Was that the spark that led, led to Old Elk? Thing? It, it was. Yeah. It, it was... Uh, I mean, everything about it was just, I don't know, what, what would you call it? Not fate. Well, it could be fate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it just seemed, everything just fell into place all at once. And so, you know, we let that product age till it was four years old. Uh, everybody did their, stayed in their same jobs while it was aging. And uh, 2016, when it was almost of age, is when they invited me to join them. Uh, at first as a consultant but then in march of 17 they asked me to join them full time uh following november is when we launched a brand uh in market so when you um went to ferment the the unique mash bill you mentioned earlier for the first time um from your expertise in the past you probably had gulp you know um guidelines to kind of tell you how to do things did it go as you theoretically thought it was going to go or were there things that that acted a little bit trickier 
Well, it actually it actually went uh, it really went the way I thought it was going. Oh. <laughs> but the re- the reason the reason that it happened that way was really because of the experience I had going into it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the high malted barley content bourbon mash bill, uh, and as long as you've got 51% corn in a bourbon mash bill, uh, it's going to act pretty much the same as any bourbon mash bill. So, so that, that mash bill was not difficult to ferment and distill. That was pretty straightforward from the technical part of it. Uh, 95% rye was always uh, the hardest mash bill to produce and have the quality come out. Mm. And I'd say we probably perfected that mash bill in Lawrenceburg over probably a 30-year period Jeez. Uh, in many ways. Uh, from the type of grain that we used, uh, we, we did uh, hooked up with some uh, enzyme uh, companies who put us on the enzymes that would uh, break the viscosity of that particular mash as well as the foaming. Uh, and just every it, it, over a 30-year period, that distillery perfected that mash bill. Uh, when we got to the wheat uh, wheat bourbon mash bill, again, 51% corn in there. So uh, swapping the wheat out for the rye was, from from a, a processing standpoint, was pretty much a trade-off, no, no big deal. Uh, the 95% wheat uh, could have been a really difficult mash bill to produce because uh, it has it shares the same difficult characteristics that rye does uh, relative to the components within that grain that aren't fermentable but they contribute contribute to uh, processing problems and quality problems but as it turned out everything that we had learned <clears throat> in Lawrenceburg about that 95% rye actually translated huh. directly to the 95% wheat so hmm. Uh, I pretty much used all the same methods, uh, same enzymes, uh, same yeast. You had 30 years of answers. Yeah, to, yeah. To uh, again, answer that uh, question. and I, I would uh, go out on a limb and say that uh, probably nobody else could do that 95% rye mash bill and probably not the 95% wheat mash bill and have it come out uh, with, the, with the high standard of quality that, that uh, we were able to produce in Lawrenceburg. So it's basically a 30-year experiment to get where you are now. Right. Uh, that'd be a good way of putting it. <laughs> How did it change as you were crafting and honing in on it through the years? Well, we just, uh, well, for instance, with the 95% rye, one of the things that we learned uh, sort of early on was that uh, we did, we did a, a joint venture with Brooks Grain, which was just a small family-owned uh, company that was catering to the craft arena relative to uh, you know, procuring grains for those particular companies. And uh, uh, we, we hooked up with them, and, and uh, they, they're the ones that put us on to, to European rye. Hmm. And we did probably several years of studies and trials uh, side by side with Brooks Grain and uh, come to find out that uh, Swedish rye and German rye produced a, a much superior distillate than the Canadian rye that we had been using uh, you know, up to that time. How so? Uh, it, a lot has to do with just the way it's uh, handled after it's uh, harvested and the way it's cleaned before it goes into the bin. Uh, it was a plumper grain, but uh, more than anything, it was just a cleaner product when it came to the plant relative to the amount of fines uh, that were coming in on it. And we had, 
have determined that the 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 fines that were coming in with the Canadian rye were much higher than your European rye, mm-hmm. which led to uh, quality notes that we called like straw and hay-like tendencies, which were really negative characteristics. Uh, so the, the Swedish rye and the European rye was always much cleaner. Uh, and then, you know, through that uh, collaborative effort, we wound up uh, renting our own bin at uh, Consolidated Grain in Louisville so that we could uh, handle <clears throat> how often that bin's clean. Bin cleaning is is a must if you're in the bourbon or brewing business. Mm. Uh, it, it, if you don't clean your bins, it'll lead to must and, and mold characteristics, which are like it'll just wreck the batch. You can't can't use it. But then we started. Uh, we would screen screen the product going into the bin. And we'd screen it coming out of the bin just to eliminate as many of the fines as we could before we actually processed it. So that was that was one one big gain. And then again the the uh, working with the enzyme companies uh, following that, uh, you know, they put us onto a cellulase enzyme that uh, broke the viscosity uh, about 5x. Uh, rye mash is a really thick, viscous type mash. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but uh, incredibly difficult to pump, incredibly difficult to cool down. Heat transfer is really tough, and then it has a tremendous propensity to foam. Well, anytime you have foaming in a fermentation, that, that's going to create negative quality characteristics. Uh, whiskey fermentations are intended to be anaerobic, which means without air. And, and you actually leave about a foot of dry space on top of your fermenters uh, that gets filled in with CO2 gas, which is a, a byproduct of your fermentation product process. So you're actually capping your fermenter with CO2 gas, which is heavier than air, pushes all the air out, and it becomes a uh, an anaerobic fermentation. That's why when you stick your nose yeah. down into oh, yeah, it, yeah, 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 but okay. yeah it suffocates you. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's, it's, it's always yeah. a standing so you know joke. Oh, yeah. Stick That's your head down there and smell that. And yeah. it's like, first thing that the guy does. I, I would assume that the the foam, if it were to build up, would penetrate that 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 CO two cap. It does. And then not. Exactly. Yeah. It actually. It actually. Uh, drives the CO2 gas cap off, mm. and then the foaming actually draws air into your fermenter. And then now you have a, a, that, a process that isn't what you intended. Exactly, and, <laughs> and it'll create negative quality characteristics. Right. Hmm. So, um, what, If you taste a rye that you believe has a fault in it that perhaps hmm. is a higher rye content, um, can you taste if there was an aerobic reaction that may have happened like like are, are those off-putting characteristics will that go all the way through to the bottle oh yeah yeah and generally speaking yeah. that that would be uh we would call that a high aldehyde, high aldehyde. Or, okay. it, it, uh, you've probably heard people describe maybe some whiskeys as having f- like the taste or the smell of freshly mown grass mm-hmm. green, yeah. green wet grass yeah. that would be a high aldehyde uh-huh. uh product which is a derivative of of poor fermentation Mm. which is a result Uh, of that oxygen which can be a result of either the fermenter getting hot or foaming foaming more more times is it hard for you to drink other people's whiskey then (laughs) so before greg chimes in on this i want to give you a note yeah i've done a lot of tastings with greg and my favorite thing is when he'll actually 
pick up a glass of whatever we're tasting yeah. and knows it. And most yeah. most people, myself included, pick up a glass and go, oh my God, I'm getting honey and vanilla and caramel and toffee in this and that. And Greg picks it up and goes, well, there's no ethylates. There's no beta, you know, there's no <laughs> aldehyde. The there's no this. Yeah. There's no that. That's a good whiskey. And you're like, yeah. wait, you didn't say what was in there. He's like, no, I said what wasn't yeah. in there. If there's no defects, then it's a good yeah. whiskey. I, I, I guess a better question is, because um, I, I, I believe you're too kind of a person to ever point a defect out. Um, you can try something and perhaps you could see in your own mind's eye over with all the experience, perhaps the steps that went into making it and perhaps missteps. Well, here, here's, here's the, the, the real differentiator. So I earlier talked about my training from Seagram's. Mm-hmm. And all my training on the sensory and organoleptic was all on the job training. It was all provided to me, you know, by Seagram's. And they, my training was all about identifying quality defects in the white distillate before it went into the barrel. Wow. So as Ross was saying, my background is not about identifying flavor characteristics yeah. after maturation. And uh, again, it goes back to what he was saying. When, when I look at whiskeys, I'm actually looking for a whole array of these quality defects that I was trained to look for. Right. Uh, they probably had a pamphlet, eh, probably 25, 30 pages. Might have, might have had 50 or 60 different types of compounds that that they trained us to look for uh, that they determined were quality defects and not supposed to be in the product probably 10 of them you would probably see in any given week and the other 40 you may never see but the the most common would be aldehydes which we just talked about uh uh, must uh mold those are great would be grain related uh Barnyard was a big one. It <laughs> smells like a hog lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that would generally be a, it could be a, dis, a distilling defect, but probably more likely a grain related. Uh, high aldehydes would usually be uh, fermentation related, either the fermenter got hot. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeast are very sensitive to heat. If you get above 90 degrees while they're processing the sugars and al- alcohol, uh, they you know like we like us in the summer we get hot and we get stressed out well when yeast get that way they start producing off off quality products in in more amounts than 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 you're after so uh, hot fermenters is is a big deal or foaming is a big deal um uh leather uh dill dill would be a sour fermenter Uh, you've probably heard the term dill Mm -hmm. uh some people like to use that as a positive note uh my training would uh, beg to differ on that one, but uh, uh, so yeah, there's there's uh, every step of the way there can be things that uh, that go wrong mm-hmm. that, that'll affect the quality of your product. So and that also means uh, it, it, in Indiana it, that depending upon the season, you, you might see different problems arise mm-hmm. because of just the weather conditions and the possibility of having like the exact same everything another great question (laughs) so uh for a big part of my career down there uh we never had coils in our fermenters we never had cooling coils okay so when we were making rye whiskey uh that was uh we actually had to adjust the amount of grain in the fermenters as the weather got hotter to keep those fermenters from 
getting above 90 degrees. So, so, so a- ambient temperature yeah. all act- or certainly had uh, played a part yeah. in, in yeah. those fermentations. And uh, because we didn't have cooling coils to, you know, uh, control the temperature of the fermenter, then uh, we actually had to control the amount of grain, which uh, controls the amount of heat that's going to be liberated. Which also means you're, you're fermenting less during <clears throat> that time. Yes. So, yeah, we would get take bushels out we'd get less yield uh, and then even in the summer we never we never produced rye whiskey in the summers for the most part because so over all those years are you like writing a notebook like hey it's about this temperature let's take it out was, this much no it was actually uh, every day being out in the field i actually i called it my palm pilot but yeah, it was yeah. it was a, a stack of ibm cards stapled <laughs> together <laughs> really? it, was, it was in my front pocket oh, every, every day and it had uh, it had all the information about all the fermenters that were in progress. Really? Yeah. Wow. And uh, the age, uh, we would adjust distilling rates based on age. Uh, that's another... Uh, uh, based on age of the fermenter. Age is a big thing on fermenters. Right. So uh, some, some folks yeah. in the industry will set their fermentation at, just say, 72 hours. Right. And, you know, fermenters are incredibly variable about when they finish they, they can be done in 60 hours mm-hmm. uh, they can be done in 80 hours but if they're done at 60 and you wait to 72 to ferment or distill them right uh, your quality is going to go down so that, that was uh, the age of the fermenter was always a big deal uh, we would adjust uh, enzyme dosages on a daily basis based mm-hmm. on what the actual fermentation age was relative to the target age uh, so every day was uh, every day was adjustments. So we how would did you adjust the pH over the years? The pH of the fermenter yeah. is a big deal. So you've heard the term sour mash, I'm sure. Yeah. And really, all that is 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 depressing the pH of your mash from neutral seven down to our target was always five. Mm. And what that does is retards bacteria growth. It does add some flavor characteristics, but sour mash uh, techniques are primarily intended to retard bacteria growth and enhance the growing conditions for yeast uh, so that the yeast win the battle between uh, themselves and basically lactic acid and and, uh, and acetic acid uh, bacteria, which are airborne everywhere. Uh, Lactic is what sours milk. uh, Acetic makes vinegar. So I just keep thinking, so your job for 30-some years is to make consistent whiskey but all those factors keep going into it on a day-to-day basis. Every day. And. And. Uh, and there's more. <laughs> that's really where master distiller and just keep. So if you're in the business for a day or a week or a month, you're going to have bad days. And yeah. You might even have yeah. a bad week relative to quality. Mm. So the, the master distiller really earns his keep when, when you run into problems and when you run into quality issues. Uh, most of them are fermentation related, and at that point, where the master distiller has to figure out what's wrong, figure it out fast, so you don't have a lot of whiskey to blend off mm-hmm. five years down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's you're going to have bad days. Brewers will tell you the same thing. Yeah. You're always, always, always uh, fighting the battle between yeast and those airborne bacteria, which will turn your uh, quality south instead of north and and so being out in the plant every day is imperative looking at the fermenters keeping track of the data 
And then, you know, there's indicators that, you know, after the first 24 hours, you'll you'll start knowing that you're getting in trouble based on on the data that that mm -hmm. you gather on those fermenters. And when you see things changing, is when you have to make uh, adjustments uh, to try to steer them in the right direction rather mm -hmm. than the wrong direction. And and that's where experience is, is the key to all that. Uh, it's seeing a problem uh, more than once or over and over, and then you know just experience. It's it it, it it doesn't matter if you're a distiller or a carpenter. Uh, experience yeah. is, is the key to, to anybody's real success. Can the barrels hide those imperfections, in your opinion? <clears throat> or is it start all from the beginning before it gets in the barrel and the barrel will do its magic, but it can't hide a bad distillate? Depends on, depends on the imperfection. But uh, one of the things I, I'll, I'll say over and over as well is that uh, a barrel will always make good whiskey better. <laughs> but a barrel will never make bad whiskey good. Yeah. So that there are uh, there are some quality defects that will age out to a point. Aldehydes, if they're not uh, if they're not in too high of a concentration, aldehydes will s sort of calm down and, and age out over four or five years. But if you have uh, a quality defect like must, which is a grain related. Uh, it'll never age out. <clears throat> and, and generally speaking, most of the quality defects uh, that I was trained to identify, uh, more than not, most of them will not uh, age out uh, necessarily. So uh, it, it's imperative that, that the whiskey going into the barrel is good uh, before you spend all the time and money aging it. As in most most instances, if it's bad going in, it's going to be bad coming out. Would you say you had more good days than bad days in the <laughs> distillery? Oh well, certainly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but I will say that there was times where the bad days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess the ones that, the bad days see, might see, stand out a little more. It's like I should say this on air, but it's like the old oh shit, you know. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Those are the ones. You well, one erases all the good in a hurry. Oh. I assume those bad days can like stand out a little bit more the, for more frustrating days. I'm just trying to think too, like how do you know and like inside that fermenter was something you've been doing routine for so long? It's like how do you adjust back or scale back from like 72 to 60 hours and when you're already in that process? Well, fortunately for us, we had uh, we had uh, beer stills that we had pretty good turn down ratios on, mm -hmm. so we could. Uh, we, well, there's several things we could do. Uh, you know, we had a, a lot of latitude to speed up or slow down distillation to match yeah. actual fermentation. Uh, if if we got into a a real problem, there uh, a lot of times we would. Uh, well, we had the we had the latitude of of converting or re. Uh, we had the we had the latitude in Lawrenceburg uh, to repurpose. Uh, maybe a bad whiskey fermentation into a neutral grain spirits okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we yeah. could actually we could actually if we had two or three fermenters that were way too old and it was going to let all the ones ahead of it get too old yeah and we would actually pump them to the spirit neutral grain spirit yeah. side to get them out of our way yeah so that we could get back on track on age always back a uh, plan for anything yeah. so uh you know we did have that latitude at that facility which probably nobody else in, in the industry yeah. does <laughs> even to the point where if if a whiskey didn't make the quality cut it never went into the barrel mm. we repurposed it into neutral grain spirits 
different uh, outcome these days, though. Ex expensive Nutrigrain spray right. mash yeah. bill, but uh, <laughs> we didn't have to worry about uh, blending off a bunch of off-quality whiskeys four or five years down the road. I actually have a question on mentality shift. Obviously, with all the history you have in distilling and all the, the things that you learned how to change defects or not hide them, but know how to circumvent some of those problems. When it came to the Masters Blend Series in a totally different style, you're blending now versus distilling. It's a different mind shift. How how was that different for you in creating what is now, as you've mentioned, the hallmark of your career in the Infinity Blend and the in, entire Masters Blend Series? Was that a, a big shift for you, or was that just old hat? You're like, oh, I've done this before. I've blended plenty of things, you know, trying to make sure that there was a consistent flavor between batch to batch. Well, it's been incredibly fun. I can tell you that right <laughs> off the bat. But uh, really, I, uh, in in my uh, Lawrenceburg years had uh, very little blending and so this has really a, huh. been all new to me uh, relative to that but uh, what makes it what makes it doable I guess for me is the fact that our mash bills are so extreme relative to others hmm. that I'm actually been able to make blends by I'm actually able to make create a mash bill within a mash bill hmm. by blending so uh, you know the uh, Four grain was probably the first one we did, and that's that's uh, a blend of old elk uh, traditional bourbon and an old elk wheat bourbon. But again, because those two mash bills are pretty extreme relative to everybody else on the market, by blending them, I'm actually able to make a mash bill within yeah. those two extreme mash bills hmm. uh, to the point where we actually put the composite grain ratios right on the side of the yeah, label. Love that. The wheat, the double wheat, same thing. It was the wheat bourbon, wheat whiskey. Again, two really extreme mash bills in those two categories. And by blending them, we, we actually created another mash bill. Uh, wheat and rye, that, that followed on the same. Th uh, what, 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 it, this may be a, a, a naive question, but um, was that a technique that, that's used? So if you were... If you had two varying bourbon mash bills of the high rye and the low rye, and a customer wanted a rye content of somewhere in the middle, would that be a strategy to then be able to provide that by mixing those whiskeys at a certain ratio, as opposed to not at the grain level, but at the whiskey level for later on? Yeah, uh, that, that's certainly... Uh that, that certainly is an option that's available. Yeah. I, I would say that, uh, uh, you know, while I was still at that facility, most of those folks would buy a mix of those two different uh, bourbon mash bills, and they would do their own blending. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say David Perkins was probably one of the first and most famous uh, mm -hmm. with High West. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he put the story, you know, he put the storyline right on yeah. every one of his blends and bottles. So. Yeah. I would say that he was uh, one of the first true master blenders that, that uh, you know, took products from, from Lawrenceburg and then created his own special products. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, certainly as the craft boom has has grown and, and continues to grow, that, uh, you know, many, many folks are doing similar things. So, you know. At, at Old Elk, are you, um, do you, every occasionally just throw together a, a newer mash bill and do a little run of that or are you I, I, I guess what I'm asking is is 
if you were to do a mash bill, is that like weeks of months of thought to do something and then you make a, a like a small scale run of it? Or are you kind of happy with the spread that you have at the moment? Well, I would say, uh, I would say that at Old Elk, we'll never say no. Yeah. <laughs> we'll never yeah. say never. Yeah. Uh, right now, our focus is, is on, on building the brand. Again, we're only, we'll be six years in market this, this November. So, uh, you know, we've, we, we've developed a really nice following. Uh, the brand is real. We're growing. Uh, I would say uh, on-premise is probably our next, uh, next horizon. Uh, and I think, at least for the moment, I think, uh, you know, with the focus on building brand and, and building case sales and repeat sales, that I think we'll probably stick with the, uh, the, the uh, business plan that, that we've developed relative to uh, our four core category products and then using them to make the Master Series blends, which we've done. Uh, as well as the cash finish programs that uh, we started a year or so ago. Uh, but uh, I certainly have uh, other mash bills <laughs> migrating right. in my little noodle that, uh, you know, when the time is right, uh, we'll, we'll certainly uh, pull the trigger on those. And uh, one of the things about Old Elk is we don't ponder things very long when we decide we're going to do something. Like that. Uh, we go from zero to 60, yeah. uh, like in a flash yeah the background <laughs> of old elk for the for those that don't know yeah, the please. parent company that owns old elk is the same one that owns otterbox like the phone cases and so everything in the old elk world moves at a technology company pace which is drastically different than a lot of other whiskey companies because with whiskey obviously there's one only one way to get an aged whiskey you gotta <laughs> sit on it you gotta wait and so there's typically a lot more of a, a slowdown process for a lot of whiskey companies and unfortunately fortunately and unfortunately um as greg discussed the craft boom was huge and then a lot of those companies have been you know purchased up by larger companies which is good and bad um for different reasons but you've seen in those larger companies they start a lot slower but once they get going they build momentum and it's harder to stop whereas um at old elk being that we're such a small company and then on top of it we're used to working at tech speed they're used to being you know on the otterbox side they're used to being able to say hey the new iphone comes out tomorrow good news by you know two days from now we're going to have ten thousand cases for that phone ready made how they do with that fast i don't know but at the same token um they're able to move that quickly because they have general parameters as to where things are going so to greg's point things move unbelievably fast uh, much faster than I've ever seen on a whiskey company, but it's been awesome in the, the growth. When I started four and a half years ago, as I said, we were only in 18 states, and we sold $1.4 million uh, the first year, which we thought was pretty good, but it was about 3,000 cases. Um, this year, we're, um, we're shooting for about $35 million, and we're in all 50 states, and we've been growing like crazy. We're going to if we haven't already, I believe we're going to eclipse 100,000 cases this year. So we've been growing pretty quick. But there's always patience to come back to making whiskey. I mean, you have to. Yeah, like, right. And that's, that's why Built I was asking, in, yeah. you know, how do you know roughly where we're going to go and how do we, how do we forecast that? Right. Because uh, whether it's Scotch whiskey or any whiskey out there, 
you better know at minimum four or five years in, in advance, hey, by the way, we're going to go to this point, and so you better start laying down some whiskey to get there. Yeah. Did you foresee anything um, coming in the whiskey boom back in the early 2000s? Was there something that stood out, or is it just the amount of customers coming in asking for more product? I don't know that anybody predicted right. uh, this boom. <laughs> uh, again, I said earlier that there was a period of time where brown goods were just freaking flat. Everybody was full. Uh, I, I doubt, I can't think anybody that could say they predicted this boom, but uh, everybody is certainly geared up to ride the wave and uh, there's I don't I don't see any signs of it really slowing down so actually I wanted to ask Peter um you've been in in the on on premise side for a while now making cocktails and for me I started in this about 15 years ago right as the boom started to take off and the only thing I could see is a translation as to what kind of kicked it off was Mad Men and Boardwalk Empire when everybody saw cool people drinking cool classic cocktails that were all made with whiskey and then from there it started into i hate to say it but brands like fireball Mm. getting more consumers just that taste of whiskey and then it kind of got into uh males and females drinking it and now that more females are drinking whiskey than i think ever before i think that's pushing a huge push just into the category i didn't know if you had seen something similar from your side of the bar yeah I, i mean i witnessed it. I mean, when I first started bartending, it was flavored vodkas. How many how many different flavored vodkas can you have behind a bar? And I, and I watched it make the change to the the, the whiskey boom that, that we're experiencing. Um, I, I, I don't know why. I mean, it, the answer, I, when someone asks me that, that question, I usually say it follows suit from perhaps the, uh, the craft beer world. And then that, in turn, is from the the food world. I mean, it, I, I think it's a, a, a rediscovery of flavor. And, and if you want to find flavor in the spirit world, you go away from vodka and the flavors of it, and you kind of inevitably end up at the something that's been aged for a while. And the most iconic aged spirit is is whiskey, and that that's kind of where some of the flavors have, and that may partially explain why mezcal and tequila are kind of make, or mezcal is kind of, you know, mm-hmm. creeping up because there's flavor to be had there as well. Right. But that doesn't explain it whatsoever. <laughs> there, there's so many other things like, like the, um, like the, the television spots, what, whatever. So, yeah, I think the other key too is just the everyday consumer is so much more educated yeah uh about what they're drinking and and they're incredibly enthusiastic <laughs> about what they're drinking and you know what they can find next uh and that that's been that's that's been a lot of fun in a, in a whole different aspect of the you know the business as well so do you enjoy that part of it where I, consumers come up to you with a lot of knowledge of your brand and other brands and want to tell you how smart they are about it sometimes <laughs> no i think i think it's uh overall i think it's a very yeah, good thing like i think that you know it's like anything the more educated you are about something and the, and the more familiar you are with something uh you know the more the the likelihood that you're going to enjoy it is, yeah. is higher so you know there's there's always uh an outlier in the crowd <laughs> but uh, generally speaking i think uh i, I think really people want to know more about yeah. 
you know the business and and what they're drinking and and they um you know they'll they'll take all they can get i I think that's a wonderful thing that also put puts old elk in a unique position in that Mm -hmm. um i mean you as as a as a um, spokesperson for it traveling around they can ask you the very technical questions and they get a real answer oh absolutely from the, the source yeah and again it uh i'll put old elk up against anybody in the quality arena because right. uh, i yeah, you know I, I know what the quality of that product yeah. is and, uh, it's as good or better than anybody else's on the shelf so absolutely and i guess it goes back to people too it's what you learned all those years it's just about people's skills and when they can talk to you and communicate to you and as a fan and not overstep boundaries of like telling you how to make your whiskey or maybe something like that. It's just always a really great, honest conversation. And there's more people just more people than ever to make whiskey for. Yeah. The thing I've noticed in general about, as you were saying, the, the growth in customers and their knowledge and their, their eagerness for knowledge. I've found whiskey to be very different than a lot of other categories in the world in that not just spirits, but just in general, whiskey is something where, yes, you can, there are people who drop, $30,000 $30,000 on a bottle of rare Macallan. Um, and obviously the secondary market for a lot of the allocated bourbons, they go, they go crazy. But the benefit of whiskey in general to me is that it's an everyday luxury. Mm. It's something that you don't have to be making a million dollars and drive a Maserati to enjoy. But if you have that kind of money, great. There's a ton of other things to enjoy. But the everyday man who, you know, is working in the trades or um, who's putting himself through school or whatever the case is, they can drop $30 and get a fantastic whiskey. Or if they want to step it up, even the old elk range, like ours start around $50 and go up to about 150 But even that, it's not breaking the bank. Mm-hmm. That's something you can enjoy. Like, hey, I just got a promotion or an everyday, like, you know, a uh, new job or whatever you want to call it, like that everyday luxury item that people can splurge on. And I think that's helped grow the category because you don't have to be, you know, unbelievably rich or athletically inclined or a super nerd and computers or whatever. I've, I've found the amount of people like the only other thing I can put up against it is barbecue that people like get super into. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's that everyday kind of luxury that people kind of get super into because it's it's attainable. Yeah. I, was, I always thought I thought, thought of it kind of as in the terms of music as well, where mm-hmm. people they get into a band they kind of claim ownership over a band like oh i knew them before they sold out or something like that yeah and, but anybody can listen to music anybody yep. can go to a concert for ten dollars at your local bar or you can pay five hundred dollars go see taylor swift whatever you want to do there's always music to be consumed same with whiskey yep prices everywhere and it speaks to how the customer has become so diverse as you were speaking on like more women drinking whiskey than ever people mm-hmm. from all backgrounds drinking whiskey and it just leads the consumer to more choices we're back after a slight technical difficulty or me Forgetting to bring batteries. Yeah, Go um, ahead, Peter. For the um, the the first releases of Old Elk, um, that contained some of the distillate that that you distilled um, before joining uh, Old Elk when you were at MGP. Um, wh- where where is uh, the whiskey at now currently with stuff that's being produced at at Old Elk um, with relative to what else is being put into it from what you made earlier. So, uh, all the product that I produce, we're still living off of that product currently. Uh, like I said, I did about 14,000 barrels initially. Uh, last year, actually, we 
you know, started projecting uh, growth over the next five years and uh, started to see some gaps in that inventory and, and, uh, and, ha and have had MGP lay down new product since I've left that facility. Uh, but uh, I still have uh, a fair amount of control uh, over that uh, process. Um, so they, they still have to use the same methods that, uh, that I developed. They obviously have to use the same mm -hmm. hash bills. Uh, they have to use the same yeast that I use, which, which they have. <coughs> and then I still get uh, white distillate samples to evaluate before we uh, accept uh, the product. So uh, I, although I'm not there every day to oversee every fermenter like I was uh, five or ten years ago when I when I put these products in the barrel but uh, I still have enough oversight uh, uh, to ensure that mm -hmm. the the quality going forward is is what I would expect and what old elk would expect is that loss of control hard to give up or is it something that just comes along with starting a new brand well uh, it's I, I missed <laughs> I, I have to say that I miss getting to see those fermenters every day. Relative to the question, also, we, we do have a, a small craft distillery uh, in Fort Collins, but, uh, again, it's, it's very small. Uh, we, we have done uh, other custom mash bills in that facility, which will probably be uh, brought to the table at our reserve, the tasting room. Uh, it's only about 125 barrel. Mm. Uh, a year facility so very small but uh you know for for now mgp will continue to produce uh uh inventory for us as needed uh and you know again under my supervision mm -hmm. so from you transferring the 95.5 rye mash bill to the wheat mash bill um to the wheat whiskey do you see that kind of growing in popularity as much as the 95.5 rye did in american whiskey i think uh I, I do believe that the wheat bourbon and the wheat whiskey uh, are going to be the next mm. growing categories, and I'd like to say that I, that we're going to lead the charge on that. Yeah, yeah. The wheat of bourbon for us has actually turned into our number two selling skew and our number one selling single barrel. Oh. Uh, our straight wheat whiskey is just starting to pick up steam. It took a little bit longer to get number one the whiskey to the right age because the wheat. Um, and Greg, I know when we were starting to taste out samples, the wheat of bourbon was ready around five, whereas you said the wheat, straight wheat had to be at least six years old and above before it was ready to, to see consumers taste it. Um, but we actually just had product that last month turned 10 years old um, in the wheat of bourbon, or sorry, in the straight wheat whiskey, and then eight year old in the wheat of bourbon. And so we're going to have anniversary releases coming out of those. And there is no other company that has anything close to our, our mash bill on the straight wheat whiskey. Mm -hmm. uh, there are very few straight wheat whiskeys out there, let alone anybody getting close to a 95% mash bill. So to Greg's point, I think that's one that we have to do a lot more education on because simply there because aren't there aren't a whole lot of other companies out there doing it. Right. The wheat of bourbon, other people, most, people most people know the other big wheat of bourbon hitters out in the, the allocated world. Um, and the old elk wheat of bourbon is kind of seen in that crowd as if you can't find the Wellers and the Pappies and the this and the that and insert other, you know, allocated bourbon name here. Um, people are searching for ours because they know it's, it's an unbelievable, not replication, but unbelievable quality within that same range. Um, 
Whereas the straight wheat whiskey, most people have never had a straight wheat, mm -hmm. so they don't know what that flavor profile is. So it's taking a little bit more education on our side, but we're starting to see it pick up for sure. That's great. Is that why you're kind of out on the road more these days to actually explain what the wheat does to the uh, to a whiskey? Yeah, it's uh, everything's in uh, a process of education. So yeah. uh, you know the really the 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 key is uh, just getting people to try it, and you know the product will stand up for itself. Uh, just we we just have to lead them lead them to the water, so to speak. Uh, what about wheat whiskey? Is it that it can be in the barrel a lot longer than other grains to develop more flavor. Well, the best way I can explain it is is uh, corn really brings a real robust characteristics to a whiskey, mm -hmm. uh, sort of the in-your-face characteristics. Uh, and wheat uh, wheat is a, a, a gentler, milder uh, grain relative to corn and what it brings to the table. So. Uh, what I what I found uh, with the wheat bourbon and the wheat whiskeys, actually, when I produced them, I expected them to be ready at four years old, just, mm. just like bourbons. And, and we actually started building our, our business plan around that. And when I sampled them at four years old, it, neither one of them was ready uh, because of the low corn content or the no corn content. They needed more of the barrel maturity notes to really carry them. Uh, so uh, we waited to five years. I looked at both products again. Uh, the wheat bourbon was ready, uh, but the wheat whiskey still wasn't ready. Uh, so it took six years uh, for the wheat and five years for the wheat bourbon. But I think their wheelhouse is actually going to be, <clears throat> I'm going to say, six to 12 years old, uh, where bourbons is probably four to eight in my mind. So, yeah, it's uh, been a learning curve for me, too, actually, that, the wheat bourbon and, and wheat whiskey were the f first mash bills I ever produced with wheat in them. So really? Cool. Again, that, that was uh, all brand new to me eight and ten years ago. So I saw the smile on your face when um, you brought up how Old Elk was the first customer to come in with wanting to do custom mash bills. Was that something you've been toying around with in your head before that or you wanted to do but never had the opportunity? Well, it was always, uh, we, yeah, it was something that, uh, any master distiller loves to try new things, yeah. certainly. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, at that particular stage in my career, um, in, in that commercial arena, uh, the cost of mash bills was a very big, was a very big part of our budget year in, year out. So, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, how come other companies don't do those mash bills and and the biggest reason that they don't is because they're expensive they're expensive to make and and we don't really old elk doesn't really upcharge for the cost of those mash bills and just a real quick reference point uh, the old elk bourbon it's 51 percent corn uh 15 rye and 34 percent malted barley so corn is the most available of any of the cereal grains and it's the cheapest it also has the highest starch content, yeah. which is the part that's uh, converted into alcohol. And that runs eh, four or five bucks a bushel probably. So you step up to the rye, it's probably eight to ten bucks a bushel. And the starch content's a lot lower. So you're getting less proof gallons per bushel and you're paying twice as much. Yeah. So you go up to the malted barley, now you're talking probably 30 bucks a bushel. Mm. 
And again, the starch content's lower than corn, so less PGs per bushel, and six times six right. times the cost of corn. And wheat uh, is probably in the same neighborhood as rye, probably. Uh, so it's it's those mash bills are going to be more expensive than the high corn content mash bills that you'll see elsewhere. So. So bourbon will always stay on top, just because of price. <laughs> so, so you want to use as little as malted barley as possible, and then the the secondary grain as well. Yes. yes. Which yes. also makes it expensive yeah. for distilleries in America to start oh, yeah. single malt distilleries. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Are you guys playing around with that at all? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I have to kill you. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm willing to die for whiskey, I guess. <laughs> the twinkle in my eye probably answered that question. Couldn't hide it very well. Everybody on video will see it. So later yeah. on YouTube, you know, because yeah. all the cameras we have around here. Yep. No, that's fascinating, and I think it's it's so interesting to start these distilleries where or think back on whiskey. How you know, let's just go to the '90s for example. People really weren't buying bourbon, really weren't wanting whiskey in America, and then you go to the craft boom in the 2000s to where we are today with 2,000 whiskey distilleries um, only in just America alone. Like, where are we going with this whole this whole trend of whiskey, in your opinion? Uh, sky's the limit, yeah. uh, really. And it's another unique thing about this industry is I don't know that anybody thinks they're the best necessarily. Mm. And I think, generally speaking, I think uh, as much as we're competitors, we're still family. Mm. And I think the attitude is that there's room for everybody. Uh, and I think that's what makes it such a, an unusual industry that uh, makes it so much fun is that we're competitors but we're family at the same time it's, it's very unique it seems like whiskey still a lot of fun for you <laughs> it all these years later. Like, yeah. it's amazing I mean, it's one thing i wanted to ask you is like is whiskey still fun and don't even have to ask the question you know well over an hour in this conversation you can see it all over your face every time you talk about any part of the whole entire industry yeah and i think really it, it, at this point it's it's the gratification of watching people truly enjoy what you've made a career out of. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that's the best compliment in the world is, is watching somebody truly enjoy a product that, that you put together and, and produced for a consumer. Uh, yeah. It's, it's the best. There's a lot of space out there. I mean, there's not a lot of space out there because there's so many brands and I've talked to other breweries about this topic where it's like, the Patriots, love it or hate them, they're consistent for 20 years winning championships and being a part of the top conversation, not always being the best, but always being up there, being noticeable and recognizable, which is obviously every brand's um, goal is to be out there on everybody's back bar, being on shelves in every back, great back bar in every city, trying to get cocktail placements and just having the consumer enjoy your whiskey. Is consistency the biggest thing, to com the biggest component to doing that? I think it has to be. I mean, that's that's... That's my grassroots is, is, is you know, it, it all boils down to quality. Yeah. And, and if you bring quality to the table, regardless of what industry you're in, uh, you're going to be successful. And if you don't bring quality to the table, you won't. Should we taste some stuff? Yes. Yeah, I, I, yeah. yeah Peter? Um, so you, quick, quick question. You, you mentioned um, the, the, some of the things you, you did to ensure consistency. Um, fermenting distilling what are you how, what are you how are you finding that consistency in the blending room now that that that's mm. that's got to be a challenge too well 
Well, I think, it, you know, again, I think, uh, I think it, you have to start with uh, what I call world-class quality. And, and if, if you've got that, I think that in itself brings consistency. Hmm. And then, you know, you can, you can, if you've got quality products across the, uh, you know, across our portfolio, which we do, then you can mix and mill any one of those components and you're still going to wind up with a, a world-class quality product. So, uh, you know, my heritage has always been uh, about quality and it was uh, rooted uh, in my training from Seagram's and it's, it's, it's become part of me and it will continue to be a part of me. <laughs> what do you think about all these brands emerging? When you have someone come up to you and be like, yeah, I'm starting my own distillery, I just started one, like, what's your initial thought right away? <laughs> well, I think, sadly, I think, uh, I, th I think they only know what they know, and mm. I, I think that's, I think that is really probably one of the hardest things in the craft arena yeah. is is not having the experience and the knowledge that you need to really produce a quality product uh you know n nobody in the craft arena is making poor quality products because they want to it's just that they don't necessarily know any better right uh you know you could you could use an analogy as a cook you know uh, you know anybody can fry an egg, but very few people can be a master chef. So, uh, it, it the analogy sort of sort of sticks in in the whiskey industry too. Mm. Uh, you know, you <clears throat> pardon me. You you have to have you have to have the knowledge and you have to have the experience uh, to be able to make world class quality products. Uh, you can have all the book learning in the world, but if you haven't been out in the trenches. Uh, with those processes for for years, and 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 to have to troubleshoot issues that crop up every day, and to rely on that library that you build in your own head relative to realizing what the problem is and then fixing the problem, uh, you you have to have that experience to be a what I call a qualified master distiller. Right. right. It's not everybody has a shirt pocket full of note cards yeah. and 40 years. Palm pilot yeah, yeah. A long way. <laughs> no 40 years of experience too, which, like you said, the only way of getting it is getting in there. Yeah. Like people probably ask ourselves as ambassadors and market managers all the time, like, "Would you ever start your own distillery?" And for me, I'm like, "No, I've never even. I mean, I've worked in distilleries, but I'm not a distiller whatsoever, and not a blender. It's something that I love, something I can talk about, and everything, every brand I represent, I'll get to know every detail possible I can to speak on behalf of it, but." actually running the machines like you talk about the enzymes 30 years of changing one of the best known whiskeys out there in america and there you are honing and crafting it every single day yeah, like, mm -hmm. so much attention to detail where, where's the the greg med school of distilling gonna, gonna open up <laughs> <laughs> well i hate to say it but uh, i am the last person to have gone through the seagram master distilling training program mm. Really, so I'm, I'm the last. Okay, okay. Will, will, will there so, be a, uh, a, a revive a, it, Peter? A, a, the um, the Greg Metz book of distilling or something? People have yeah. asked me to do that. Yeah, yeah. I haven't really. Uh, I haven't taken it seriously yeah. yet. <laughs> uh, 
So, you know, again, a, a book, a book is good, but having the ability to be in the trenches for as long as I did is is really the key. And, and you know, that's sadly it's a, generation. sadly it's a generational most thing. People uh, most people don't stay at companies yeah. for yeah. Yeah. 10 years or 20 years or 30 years like I did. And, you know, sadly, most people won't get the training that I received in my generation so it's it's one of those things but you know with that being said you know i i i work alongside melinda maddox who's our our uh, head gal out in fort collins and and she's really the brainchild of all our cash finish programs mm. and uh, recently came out and developed her uh, a cigar blend on her own which is it sold out before it even hit the shelf so nice. you know i i i do my level best to you know, pass along, uh, you know, what I've learned uh, relative to, you know, what she's doing on any given day. Yeah. Uh, to, to you know, promote promote the next generation of, of you know, master distiller or master blender or whatever. So, hmm. and, you know, I will always be there for her, even if I retire some, sometime down the road. I mean, I'm not just going to close the book. Don't, seem like, don't seem like a guy who's going to retire <laughs> any day. <laughs> No, it's, it's been a, I mean, it's been a, a wonderful, a wonderful career. I've been very, very fortunate. Uh, really have. It's amazing to find, I, I, speaking for you, I guess, something you love so early on in your life and staying with it. Where a lot of people don't get to wake up every day and go to a job that they do love and something they do appreciate. It, uh, it's been remarkable. I, I can't say it was ever planned. Right, I mean, right, right. It fell into place and. And it's not to say I didn't have to work hard and, and do a lot of difficult things, but, you know, at the end of the day, it it was uh, just good fortune, really. Mm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> good for it, you. It certainly wasn't planned. It's, it's no. not like I graduated, so, well, I'm gonna, I think I want to go be a master distiller. I didn't even know what one was when I right, joined, right. joined Seagram's back in the day. So, What was your thought initially when your first job? Uh, just like got I a job? Earlier, I just... I'm gonna work for a company and make whiskey. And got got to be pretty fun. So yeah, oh man, that's awesome. So, it's kind of like what's happened. I feel like nothing's really ever planned in the whiskey world. Like right now, we have the phenomenon of whiskey of single barrels, and the explosion of that has happened. Like why? Like can anybody say is there one reason why single barrels have really blown up over the last seven to ten years, and it's become such an important part to our industry? Um, I can tell you what what helped some of the growth for us on single barrels. I don't know if that explains everything. I think um, we might have had this conversation. We might have. I guess. Uh, sure. Is it COVID? Yeah, it was part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we found the amount of people who were at home during COVID, and they're like, well, I like whiskey, and my friend down the street likes whiskey, and let's all start a whiskey group, and that way we can start to you know, buy stuff together and talk about it once a week, and it gives us something to look forward to during COVID as we're all stuck at home. And then it became those whiskey groups wanting to buy single barrels. And uh, our single barrels went from 40 our first year in 2019 to uh, about 250 the following year. And we're shooting for about about 1,200 this year. year. So, yeah. 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 All large large casts as well? 53 gallon casts? Yeah. I mean, we we don't have any small, like, that's the smallest we have. Yeah. We do have some of our cask finished series that have been finished in a sherry barrel or a port barrel that Mm -hmm. got up to about 350 gallons. But outside of that, they're all the standard 53 gallon barrels. So, 
<laughs> yielding anywhere from 175 to 200 bottles typically. Wow. What are we drinking right now? So this first one I poured for you, I wanted to showcase some of Greg's Masters Blend Series. So this is our four grain. And as Greg alluded to, it's a combination of our straight bourbon and our weeded bourbon. And I actually had a Master Psalm taste this at one point, and his, his description was too good not to steal. Um, so he said tasting this is like watching the Kentucky Derby. And all the flavors burst out on your palate all at once. They're all vying for first position. And just as you think one flavor profile is going to overtake everything, it drops down in a whole other level, and it's a totally different race. And it takes two to three minutes for everything to dissipate on the palate, and it gets more exciting as it keeps going. So this is one that, to me, and I'll obviously like Greg to explain it because he made it, but, uh, uh, but to me, this one was much more surprising and much more active than I had assumed. Most of the time when I think four grain, you think that quick flash of flavor, and it disappears pretty quickly. Right. So, so how did this whole series begin? Well, really, it uh, was uh, conceptualized by marketing and sales. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, Smart people out there. Yeah, so, you know, they, they watch the trends. They're, they're out there with the consumers every day, and, and they're looking at data every day. And, uh, you know, they decided that they thought a, a four-grain would, would be a, a nice introduction into uh, what we started as our Master Series blend. So, and again, uh, fortunate for Old Elk, we had some really what I'd, I'd say custom mash bills, but they're pretty exotic, really, relative to others. So uh, the, the ability to have those blending points uh, being extreme and, and be able to create something in between was was really what, what made it so successful. So uh, we started with the four grain, then we moved to the double wheat, and then this year we just uh, released the wheat and rye. So... Again, they're just all blends created from our core four category uh, categories of uh, whiskeys. So hmm. it's been fun. And then we've got the Infinity blends as well. But uh, So, yeah, it's it's been – that part's been a lot of fun. How is it different working on the back end of making whiskey versus on the front end of everything? Well, it's been uh, an adjustment, I think, uh, but it's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Again, I, I – I do miss being out in the trenches every day. Uh, I, you know, it's been in my blood for my whole freaking career. So <laughs> to say I don't miss that would be uh, uh, an untruth. But uh, no, the the ability to uh, play in this category and 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 build a brand from ground zero is is uh, a whole new arena, and it's uh, it's is equally uh, gratifying. It's it's been great and i look forward to doing the next master series blender and actually the next infinity blend is probably the next thing i gotta get working on it gotta poke in the ribs at lunch about that yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. as early as today yeah. that would be number three <laughs> yeah what's the process of that well it uh, implies a perpetual blend so uh, again that was brought to the table by our sales and marketing folks uh, thought it would be cool to start a, uh, an actual infinity blend and uh, so each one will incorporate a portion of the blend before mm -hmm. uh, but then uh, each one will be an entirely different blend than the other one with uh, entirely different storylines so mm -hmm. that's that's been uh, been great hmm. 
So I'm going to give you guys a question here. Uh, preference, actually. Would you guys prefer to try the double wheat next, or do you want to totally skip that and have a little bit more of a, a challenge for the palate and try the wheat and rye, which is our newest product that Greg made? But I will tell you, the, the double wheat goes against some of your more sought-after allocated whiskeys mm-hmm. out there. The wheat and rye, there is nothing like it out on the market. It's 95% rye distillate, 95% wheat distillate. Peter, I'll let you choose since we're in your place. I mean, I, I want to try all of it, um, but the, the double wheat I am familiar with, so okay. the, the, the okay. new stuff, the newer tobacco stuff, I'd love to try. Let you, I will let you pour what you need. Pour what you need. So this one literally just kind of hit, started hitting the market, and um, Greg, obviously, Greg, obviously yeah. made it. You made it. I'm going to stop explaining. I'm used to doing that. Sorry. I know. It's always nice when the yeah. person who actually makes it's around. Yeah. Well, again, it, it's uh, it's derived from uh, two extreme mash bills. It's a 95% rye, 5% malt, and 95% wheat, 5% malt. So talk about two different uh, two different uh, flavor profiles clashing, if you will. 95 Yeah. Yeah. Pour yourself a little bit more, and the only reason I say that flashing is probably not a good term. This one needs two sips. Two sips. The the first sip you take is going to really confuse the palate, and you're going to wonder what's going on, because these are two whiskeys that don't ever really get combined. I don't know of any other company that's doing it. Yeah, no. But the second taste is going to be a roller coaster for the palate. Everything comes shooting up in the front with all the whiskey notes. It dive bombs down past the mid palate, totally skips it, and comes roaring back up in the back with all the rye notes. Mm. Strangely uh, enough, the the wheat. Uh, when people have tasted the wheat, uh, a lot of folks will say they taste a, a spice note in there. It's an entirely different spice than than the clove type spice in the rye. But you've got two different kind of spice notes uh, joining up in this blend, which is really unique. Do you know where that's coming from? Uh, just the cereal grains, mm. yeah. Yeah, this one came out at 108.4 proof, so there's definitely some cojones to it. But it's, as I said, the first taste is more the confusion of like, wait, what's happening here? Yeah. <laughs> I get like sweetness, spiciness. Yeah. Kind of goes back to the levels out, find more sweetness. Yeah. And it's get, like that, a little cinnamon flavor to it as well. And Yeah, and then the second taste is where it all kind of comes together. So, hmm. definitely one I recommend trying twice. How is it for you selling all of this? Um, not that there's like a ton of different marks, but there is a lot of story behind it. And there's also, you know, Greg's story behind it too. And then starting off as a new brand, obviously you're exceed- you're excelling. So, that's great. But it's also, a lo- it feels like a little bit more of a, of a pressure to sell too. So, uh, yes and no. Um, it's been interesting. I came from, I used to work in, in the Pernod field. And I, I started out on the Scotch industry side over there. So I started out with one brand. Then I graduated to having 12 brands under the Scotch portfolios of Pernod. Then I worked under the entire Pernod portfolio, so having everything there. And then when I came to Old Elk in 2018, um, we had four SKUs. We had Old Elk bourbon, Dry Town gin, Nuku bourbon cream, and Nuku peppermint. That was it. So all of a sudden, I was able to like laser focus on it. And it was great because I could focus in on just really three SKUs. The peppermint was seasonal. So three main SKUs that we were trying to sell. 
And as soon as more stuff started coming out, as it came to fruition, both age-wise and, and ability to sell in different markets, all of a sudden it became that much easier. Now, weaving in Greg's story has made it much easier for me to paint the picture. Yeah, you just got that, yeah, just got that second taste. <laughs> yeah, first in the back, yeah. Um, it's been interesting uh, weaving in Greg's story, uh, trying to kind of paint a picture of the knowledge he came from and the background and the, the path that he laid you know, creating 65% of roughly all the bourbons on the market mm-hmm. and 85 to 90% of all the rise out there. <laughs> it's ridiculous when you think of the, yeah. the true heritage. So just starting there and then saying, and this is what he came to do to put down a lasting legacy on, on the world of whiskey. And this is his, I don't want to say his fun, but like, this is Greg having fun. <laughs> like, so, so it makes it pretty easy for me. No, I'm glad you used the word legacy because I was going to ask you, what's it like when people are out there selling your legacy, selling you? Well, it's uh, incredibly rewarding. I mean, how can, how can you not? Everybody loves to be complimented. You right, know? yeah. And, you know, for uh, to develop these mash bills from scratch, not knowing if the consumer's going to like them or not, uh, you know, knowing that they're high-quality products, that's certainly a plus, but there's no way of knowing whether a consumer's going to like what you're doing <clears throat> until you put it out there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when it's well-received, it's it's uh, it's a glowing endorsement, and, and you have to like it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it makes sense. And it, I kind of say, I was kind of thinking through this last 10 minutes or so, are we making whiskey these days for the idea of what the consumer might like? Are we making it for ourselves as people who love bourbon, love rye, love whiskey in general? Or is it kind of more developing towards predicting trends? I don't, we, we, I don't, I can say Old Elk doesn't chase trends. What, what we've done uh, it, from the start <clears throat> by offering the four core categories, which are four totally different categories of whiskey uh, and they're different mash bills than everybody else so so we, right off the bat we've introduced four totally different categories and four totally different mash bills and sort of put it out there and left it up to the consumer to decide which one of those categories fit their palate uh, and again what not knowing if they're going to like them or not, but uh, knowing that they're high quality from the get-go is 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 is, is a pretty good start. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you know, and then we really branched off from the four four core categories into blending those four core categories for limited release items like these master series blends, and then uh, branched off some more with limited series cast finish programs. So. We're putting a portfolio out there, trying to uh, trying to make uh, a product available to many different types of of taste profiles and palates, and and you know hoping that uh, they'll gravitate to one or, or more than one of those those particular uh, products. So I, I'd I'd say we're I'd, I'd say we're trying to approach the consumer with uh with a variety of products that they can choose from and then uh, decide on their own which ones uh fit their palate and not necessarily try to tell them which one fits their palate 
it's been it's been interesting from the sales perspective on that question because we've had our our weeded bourbon was actually written up in the Rob Report magazine as a comparison to your pappies out mm-hmm. there, uh, which is fantastic. It got us a lot of press, but most people that we meet have only really ever tried our weeded bourbon because right. yeah because either that or our straight bourbon those are the two that most people have had whether the straight bourbon was available somewhere or they have a friend who has some weeded bourbon around mm. and so when they come up to us at a whiskey tasting or we're doing a seminar they'll go yeah I've had one or two of the whiskeys but I've never tried the full range and once they try everything side by side they are blown away at the the depth of variety that we have amongst the core, as Greg said, four totally different characteristics and categories, and then branching off of each of those. So for instance, even the one that I just had you guys pour, it's the rum cast finished rye. We took our straight rye that Greg made famous, it was a six-year-old rye, and did a uh, six-month finish in uh, some Barbados rum barrels. And it is, to me, it's just straight candy. Yeah. I was just, just thinking that it was like a little bit of peppermint candy to it. Oh, man, but it balances the notes between the sweetness and, like, the more vanilla coconut flavors you traditionally get from a rum um, and the spicy characteristics of the rye. Really nicely, really nicely and, and soothing versus some of them where the barrels can become a little too much and overwhelming of the whiskey itself. Huh. This question I was going to ask you, but now I'm just, like, thinking about this whiskey right now. Oh, but, uh, no. That's a good distraction. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Oh, all of them... Do- before we even, you know, get to the next question or conversation, just going back on all these whiskeys, they're they're really delicious, and just thank you for letting us try them. Uh, I'm very appreciative of that. Because the first time I had, um, what was the second one we had? The uh, the wheat and, wheat and rye. rye. Wheat yeah, and rye. yeah, amazing flavor on that. It's like, get like a little bit of a tropical fruit note to it, a little mm-hmm. mango, and then like the cinnamon burst of spiciness to it as well. Comes in that back end, just as you were predicting and saying yeah. it would happen. A yeah. lot going on with that one. Yeah. yeah. When you're traveling across the country, do you find that certain products sell better in certain areas of the country for you guys? That's probably a better question for Ross. I mean, I'm, I'm usually out in front of the consumers. Yeah, I guess I mean, not necessarily selling, but they have a better um, lend their palate towards one of the whiskeys more than the other. I can't, I can't really. So on that note, I can, I can shed a little light. Your historic bourbon states and territories so basically anything in the south and the center part of the country going north to south uh, we are much more well developed in our whiskey drinking a lot of those states have been drinking whiskey for you know they drank it through the 80s and kept places like seagram's distillery afloat uh, because nobody else was drinking it like you can go to um, south carolina or oklahoma or arkansas and every month stores and restaurants are getting their allocations of Weller or Pappy or this and that because they've been drinking it at those same places for 30 plus years. Mm. So those companies are, you know, respecting those that have helped them get to where they are. Uh, Getting into some of the Western states and definitely more into the Northeast, they're coming along for sure, but it's, it's much more of a, they're coming into the category via what they're reading about, what they're hearing about, what they're seeing online and then trying those marks and then branching out within those families. Whereas your more historic states are definitely skewing more towards your traditional bourbons. Um, Rye is starting to pick up a little bit more in the South. Rye tends to be a little bit more of a Northern Mm -hmm. um, mark overall. Uh, The weeded bourbon, doesn't matter where we go, that one seems (laughs) to be selling pretty well. Good. Um, I have seen, 
as you get more southwest than just straight south, um, education hasn't been there as much on the consumer side for whiskey as a category. People are more brand focused down there. So like Crown is like a way of life. Um, and there's nothing wrong with Crown, but there's a lot of people that you'll meet down in the Louisiana, Texas, Arkansas area that say, oh, I'm, I'm a bourbon drinker through and through. I'm, I'm a Crown and Coke guy. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that's neither American nor bourbon, but that's <laughs> beside the point. So uh, it's, it's really heritage. just getting the, the education out there more than anything else. Right. So. With every, every brand, so it kind of falls into yeah, yeah. We're exactly. all do, we're all doing out there every day to fight for shelf space and fight for the consumer in their palates. Exactly. Oh. oh, it's interesting too. I think how the consumer speaks to all these different types of whiskeys developing. Where when one distillery puts out a unique finish or a unique blend, and then another distillery tries it and it catches on with those same consumers and it keeps building and building and building just like a fire. Mm-hmm. That way all of these brands can have a spot to showcase their talent, showcase what they do either on the front end, the back end of the distillery and find their equal, sh- find a space inside of this really crowded market there. But I assume like, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we wouldn't expect to have like all this going on when it comes to barrel finishing. And oh, no. I mean, what was it like or what's it been like seeing all this evolution of barrel finishing and also just kind of developing all these different marks within one distillery? No, I think it's been exciting. Yeah. I think that's, really going to be a new frontier for whiskey as a whole so i think there's uh you know there's no limit uh to the amount of variables that you can put into play and it it, uh i think it's going to make it a lot of fun yeah it's always it's interesting how blending has become and tell me if i'm wrong um such a talent or an art as distilling is so important to whiskey as a whole too well, I think, you know, obviously uh, Ireland and Scotland's been doing it for many, many years. Uh, yeah. Different ways, certainly, but, uh, uh, yeah, blending's an art and science all by itself. Yeah. Uh, and, again, there's there's no limit, uh, which is fun. Well, I can say, I'll speak for Peter, the whiskey's delicious. Um, this conversation has been great. I don't want to take up too much of your afternoon. I know you have another event this evening, so save your voice to that as we've been speaking for nearly two hours now down here um, in the great Franklin room. Um, Greg, thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your whiskey. Thank you for sharing your story, too. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. I've enjoyed it. I can't believe it's been two hours. I know. I was, I was looking down, and I'm like, oh, we restarted about 45 minutes ago after the Zoom turned off because of my mistaken uh, part of not bringing enough batteries. But um, I cannot uh, tell you guys how much I appreciate this. It's thank you very great. much for having us. Yeah. Peter, thank you for hosting thank you, us. Greg, thank you. Is there any other questions you have, Peter, before we go? I have a few, but uh, I'll, 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 no, let's, let's get one more in. Let's get one more in. Are you, are you sure? No limit. All right. Well, um, Greg, Ross, people of Old Elk, thank you for so much. Uh, you know, the brand's been on a couple times in this podcast and been very hospitable towards the towards us. So all I can say is uh, keep doing it. Keep making great whiskey. Um, you seem like a guy that will just be doing it for as long as he lives. Yeah. <laughs> Count on our best efforts. Uh, it's awesome. been great company too, guys. No, I appreciate Good it. Time. Well, uh, for everybody else out there, um, check them out. Buy, find Old Elk is where you, wherever you can. We have two great guys that represent the brand here in the Chicagoland area. And I'm sure all across the country too. So, uh, yeah, awesome. Well, cheers to everybody out there, and uh, have a great rest of your day. See you guys.